Welcome to the Brilliant People Podcast by Assertitude, the executive search firm recruiting leaders to impact companies globally. I'm Jeff Vada, a partner in our consumer and industrial practice and your host for today's episode. On this show, we look at the ways leadership is evolving in our world and share stories from the most brilliant CEOs, private equity executives, thinkers, and doers defining our times. I'm very excited to bring on Chris Quinn, CEO of iDesign today. iDesign is a company you might not be familiar with, but there's a very good chance there are iDesign storage and organization products in your home right now. Chris brings a background with iconic consumer brands, including leadership roles at Mars and New Balance, among others. And recently, he's driven a major transformation at iDesign. The company, now the number one household brand on social media in the world, and played a pretty big role in the Netflix hit, The Home Edit. Chris, thanks for being here and welcome. Hello, Jeff. So let's jump right in. And, and I think the first place to start is really help us understand iDesign. Tell us what iDesign is. So iDesign is a consumer packaged goods company that produces products that help simplify people's lives really through home organization solutions. So if you think about organizing your pantry, your kitchen, your bathroom, we create organizational solutions for all three of those rooms from a plastic bin to a shower caddy, to a soap pump. Yeah, no, I, I know I have, I have products in my home that I didn't know uh, were I designed until, you know, you and I got to know each other. And then I went home and looked at it. I'm like, oh my God, I got this stuff all over my house. <laughs> I mean, Jeff, that's part of the challenge, right? Is to convert a company that was kind of commodity oriented into a more branded company with a large consumer following. And that's been our goal. And we're kind of in process as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was the challenge when you first came into the CEO role? You know, what was the first big challenge? What did you tackle first? One of the first things was getting the organization to be really focused on metrics and being goal-oriented since it was an entrepreneur-led and founder-led company uh, with an incredible entrepreneurial spirit that we fully embrace, but at the same time, didn't really have specific goals and metrics in terms of kind of what success looks like. And so part of the challenge initially was just working with our associates at all levels to really define what success looked like create like a three to five year strategic plan and dream, and then to kind of anchor everybody and align everybody behind that, that dream and those goals. Great. And, and so, I mean, you've worked at a number of other really large companies, right? And I'm sure part of what you learned there was, was how to go through that process, right? Strategic planning, annual planning. But what are some of the biggest lessons you took away from maybe just this past experience at step two? before coming sure. uh, to iDesign, you know, in that first step away from big company? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, having gone from multi-billion dollar companies like Procter & Gamble, Mars, and New Balance, and swooping in at the 200 some odd million dollar mark, you know, middle market, one of the biggest lessons I've learned and a couple lessons is it all starts and stops with people. Um, and some people are able to make the transition from large to small company and other folks are able to kind of transition from middle-sized company to success-oriented hyper-growth companies. And so this ability to scale both down and up, I think, is an incredible skill set. That's really hard to interview for when you're interviewing for people and you're rebuilding teams and you're starting to create a, a vision for where the company needs to go. And it all starts and stops again with people. And so part of the re-engineering effort at step two was really making sure that we had folks that were adaptable 
both can adapt to a smaller environment, which is much more fast paced decision making, you know, where, where you have to do everything from, you know, set up the, the show booth yourself to doing your own presentations to running a business and being able to serve a rather aggressive or assertive board of directors that's looking for an immediate turnaround and kind of a rescue financing situation. Yeah. And that's, you mentioned adaptable, adaptability. I mean, that that's like the Uber competency, right? That, uh, that, that we, we find with a lot of our clients in the private equity space, like you have to be able to flex up and down and deal with the ever-changing landscape. When, when you first came in, how big was the gap kind of on the team men- mentally, right? To get them thinking more about adaptability versus just pure execution. The biggest opportunity that we had coming into step two was I was a fourth CEO in less than six years. And so there was folks that obviously I had to build credibility and trust with because there had been so much organizational chaos and change. And there's a lot of post-traumatic stress from different CEOs with different agendas and different directions. And I really had to start at the grassroots level. So I started having breakfast with folks on a monthly basis at different levels of the company, started hosting town hall meetings, and really spent a tremendous amount of time kind of on a listening tour to start keeping score of concerns and building trust so that I could really release the honesty that needed to be released. And I needed to listen to about what was dysfunctional, what were the key opportunity areas so that we could quickly reorganize and rebuild a plan to get us to a point where at some point we'd be able to transact and sell the company. I mean, when I came in without divulging you know, confidential financials, we're pretty much a conversion of mezzanine debt um, into equity. And so we were on the verge of not being able to make payroll on a reliable basis. And then obviously, less than four years later, we were pretty successful thanks to an incredible team and leadership team and associates at all levels. We were able to grow EBITDA by 600% and really get us to be in a point where we had good liquidity good, solid momentum and a brand that was pretty much on fire in the space. And so how does that differ from, or maybe align with what you stepped into uh, at iDesign? You know, iDesign was a very different situation because we had a, an amazing owner, an owner that had been installed and in place for 45 years. And he used the analogy of really Jacob's Field, which was where the Cleveland Indians play, which was, hey, there's some point where it's an amazing historic baseball, you know, legendary stadium but it needs to be renovated a little bit. You know, the seats need to be replaced and things like that. So this wasn't about changing and radically changing the iDesign culture. It was about just taking what was good from that culture, the entrepreneurial spirit, the quick decision-making, infusing some process, but not trying to revolutionize the company into something it wasn't. The goal was not to make it Procter & Gamble light and take, you know, my skills and background from P&G and try to convert this company into a smaller version. It was simply to start accelerating and build off of what was already the special sauce that you know the owner, Bob Immerman, and his wife, Susan Immerman, had created. And my goal was to curate that, accelerate it, and build kind of this winning formula for the organization. And so if you think about your, your career, is there one moment that stands out as kind of the defining moment in your career? And, and listen, this can be a this can be a mess up or a failure, right? As much as it can be a sure. success. But you know, what was the one thing that stands out as the as kind of the greatest learning opportunity for you? I think it was actually early on in my career when I was working for Procter and Gamble, and I, I had a, a lot of self confidence at the time, and I, I really tasted a little bit of failure uh, after I'd been promoted, and basically received some pretty critical feedback 
about, you know, the fact that I needed to step up in certain directions and not take things for granted. And I went to my father and my father has been my professional mentor and obviously my personal mentor and, and talked to him about it and pretty much belly ached. And what my father said to me is, you're never going to be a CEO unless you start acting like a CEO. And I was like 26 years old. And it was on the best advice I'd ever gotten because I felt emotionally crushed because I was this fragile guy who basically came in, thought he was doing an amazing job and then received some criticism. And my father said, listen, you know, step up. It's time to, you know, act like a man, act like a senior manager. It doesn't mean being ungrateful. It doesn't mean being arrogant. It doesn't mean being overconfident. What it does mean is you've got to see the bigger picture. You have to think about more than just yourself. You have to think about the value of the organization. It was a concept of enterprise thinking that at the time I had no clue about what even the definition of enterprise thinking was. And some of the best advice that I've ever gotten, it's advice that I continue to parrot to folks that are younger and, and kind of coming into the organization where, you know, it is, a, you know, a lot of folks are concerned about their own career development and they're concerned about getting that next raise. And they're concerned about what the company stands for in terms of the community. But at the same time, you've got to balance that with what's the best thing for the business. Because ultimately, if the business succeeds, the best athletes, you know, are going to succeed as well. And the best athletes, you know, that cream is going to rise to the top and folks are going to be able to grow. And basically, their careers will be taken care of because they're an organization that recognizes success and recognizes impact. Yeah, it's great advice. And, and I think there's a, there, there's a lot of folks coming into the workforce today, right? And there's, there's a lot of talk about kind of generational gaps in the workforce. What advice would you give to people coming into the workforce today around how to manage their careers versus maybe what, what would have been the case 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I think the critical aspect of just entering in as a, an employee applies to whether you're a young, you know, freshly you know, minted into the workforce employee or you're somebody that's been around a long time. And that is you need to really own your career and, and you need to make sure that you control the narrative so that, you know, those opportunities you have to review your performance, benchmark your performance, understanding how you're doing, you solicit those discussions, you set those up, you have the confidence to be able to, with, a, with, with respect and being thoughtful, engage in those discussions. I mean, I think one of the keys to my career has been building sponsors across the organization. And in organizations today where most of them or many of them are, you're working remotely, it's not as easy to build kind of those sponsors beyond your direct boss. But the more sponsors you have, the more folks you have that can endorse your career, understand who you are, understand what, it, what success looks like for you and how you can possibly impact their job, their role, their function, I think is really, really critical as much today. In fact, more so today than it has been in the past, just because it's harder. And when you're remote or you're a hybrid organization, it's harder sometimes to build that sponsorship network. But I think that sponsorship network is essential to your success because you really do have folks in the organization that will look out for you. And then later on in your career, you'll do the exact same thing. So you will be the sponsor of other people, the mentor of other people, and really joy in taking you know, great self-satisfaction and seeing growth and success and, and celebrating other people and what they're able to do. I don't know if you recall, but when we first connected prior to this, you had listed four areas, buckets, let's say, that, that you were really focused on in terms of your corporate strategy at iDesign. And maybe you could tick through those again, and then we can take a moment and dive into each one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think the four areas for our company, and, and they applied to so many other companies, so I'm not sure this will be a stroke of brilliance, but the four areas are really employee engagement. I mean, first and foremost, I mentioned it already, which is it starts and stops with the quality of the work that every 
associate and individual at iDesign does every single day. And if they feel engaged, I mean, Gallup has you know statistically significant evidence of the fact that a highly engaged workforce also leads to really great business results. And so it's not something, again, that's a stroke of genius, but how do we approach making sure that we're listening, you know, saying yes, saying no, but really being honest and authentic and genuine with our employees, I think is instrumentally important. That's a really the first one, which is, again, employee engagement. The second one is really consumer engagement. You know, we are having to trust every single transaction and we're, we're having to establish a trusting relationship with each and every consumer as they purchase our products. I mean, on Amazon and in the e-commerce, you know, with e-commerce, consumers making a purchase decision almost every single minute. We're a global international business today where when we're sleeping, other folks are making purchase decisions to purchase iDesign. And so having a consumer that's engaged with the brand, having them understand what the brand is all about and understanding it's not just an organizational bin that you put in your refrigerator, but it's 100% sustainable or it's made of 100% sustainably sourced product, which is a big part of where we're going as an entire company and making sure that if they do have a bad brand experience, we make it up to them. I mean, we have a brand promise and we want to be able to create that brand promise and live with that and to that every single day. The third one really is around product innovation, which is our success or failure is dependent upon how much innovation we bring to the workforce and how much innovation we bring, obviously, to the consumer. And we've really been very hyper-focused. You know, we're not creating you know, Rolex watches and Hermes bags, we're, we're pretty much trying to do what we call elevated basics. So you think about a good, better, best kind of purchase hierarchy, you know, we're trying to do kind of good plus, uh, not ever going to be really streaming into, you know, technology, but at the same time, offering solutions that we think are incredibly valuable to the consumer and solving unmet consumer needs. And really, that's a key part of the, that, that third wheel, which is going to be obviously uh, innovation. And then the fourth one is sustainability. I, I think sustainability is the price of entry today uh, across every single industry. And I think uh, going back to the first point that I made, which is employee engagement, I think employees want to be a part of the company that is going to leave the planet better when they leave than it is when they started. And, and how are we living up to that promise to take care of not just ourselves, but also the planet and take care of the community that we serve? And so I think that Fourth area of sustainability is incredibly important. We talk a lot at our company at iDesign about uh, diversity, empathy, and inclusion. And, and those three principles have to exist in, in our company, and I think multiple companies, and you have to walk the talk when you talk about inclusion, when you talk about empathy, you know, caring for each other. And then from a diversity perspective, it's really welcoming different cultures and making sure that you know, our workforce is continuing to embrace differences of opinions as well. And so maybe we can just double click on a couple of those because, and, and I might start with the last one first, because it's, I'm personally pretty passionate about sustainability and, and I, mean, I just love to hear what you guys are doing um, and maybe what you can even share, but uh, around sustainability, given that, Hey, some of your products are, are, are plastic, right. And, and, you know, how are you helping to kind of contribute to the overall conversation around recycling and reusing post-consumer, you know, plastic products? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think we're trying to be leaders within our space, which is we're known for being plastic. We're known for having clear products so that when you look in the refrigerator, you can actually see the product that is organized within the refrigerator or within our bin. But at the same time, we're single use products. And if we can create a bin that comes from a hundred percent recycled product, 
and it is a single use product that you don't just dispose. Like, you know, one of the key questions you ask is you could buy paper, which is recycled, but if you throw 4,000 coffee cups that are made of paper into a waste bin, is that better or worse? You know, you can assume that those paper cups are going to be recycled. Most of them are not. Or is it better to purchase a plastic bin made from 100% recycled plastic, taking plastic from all different sources, including the ocean, and that's the last bin you're going to have to buy. So which is actually better for the environment? So we're really committed as a company to being carbon neutral um, in the next, you know, pretty much between now and 2030. We think we can actually beat that short term. We've got to, you know, we're absolutely chasing and hyper speed, making sure that all of our plastic products are made from 100% recycled uh, sourced resin or PET, which I think is going to be really important for the consumer. We, we could have dabbled and, you know, put some marketing spin on it and did 10%, you know, from recycled product or 15%. I mean, you can take a look at some of our competitors and you can take a look at people in other industries when you read the coffee cup and one large coffee a reseller that I visit almost every single day, only a fraction of that coffee cup is made from sustainably sourced material. Well, we decided, even though it's not cost efficient, because it's the right thing to do, to go 100%. And we say that boldly and confidently, and we think the consumer is going to you know, be willing to spend a little bit more, but we're also going to be willing to eat a little bit of that expense because we think over time, it's the right thing to do for the planet. And at the same time, we do think there's a business advantage. Let's be really clear. We think there's a business advantage because we're going to talk about it in a very thoughtful way, authentic way. Um, and the fact that we want to be part of a community that serves uh, and, and sells products that are responsibly sourced. Um, and we take that all away from a sustainability perspective to working with factories that are compliant. I mean, we're very, very committed to making sure that any product that's not made in the U.S. is made in a factory that's safe. It's made in a factory that doesn't employ workers obviously in a way that creates harm and or child labor. Um, we're also continuing to look at the U.S. and accelerate our manufacturing efforts domestically in the U.S. Our goal eventually is to have almost 100% of our products manufactured in the United States. And we have a, a real focus on continuing to provide jobs and well-being within our own country. And at the same time, obviously support our great business partners outside of the U.S. as well. Let's switch to talk a little bit more about employee engagement. And I, I think specifically, what are you seeing? Why is it different now when we're talking about employee engagement and the programs that you have to build different today than it was maybe five years ago? Oh, I, I just think the competition for talent has never been higher. And the reason is, is because with remote work working situations, you can hire the most brilliant person from anywhere in the US, whereas before it used to be much more geographically limited. So the competition for talent's never been higher. So that means our promise, our employee promise has to be significantly greater than what other folks are offering, not just within our industry, but across industry. So I think that competition has become incredibly fierce. And what we're doing is we've created a couple different subcommittees within our company at iDesign. One's called a culture of caring. And this group is a cross-functional from all different disciplines, levels of the organization that really focuses in on initiatives that speak to the heart of the employee. So whether it, it has something to do with a, a diversity uh, or inclusion uh, aspect of hiring, recruiting, and being thoughtful to our employees. So one example is we added an additional holiday, a floating holiday to the company at our expense to be able to allow folks to take whatever special day is they want to, to recognize 
whatever ethnicity they want to. We have a large Nepalese population that works in our distribution center. We have folks from different backgrounds and cultures, and we want to be sensitive by giving them an extra day of holiday to be able to do that. So that's been one of the things that we've done as well. And so this culture of caring group really spends time investing in what we can do as a company in the community. So what do we do in terms of organizations that we serve? So we make organizational products. So one of the things that we've done is we've gone into uh, homes for the homeless. We've also done some things within schools in lower or more economically challenged areas to help teachers who are overworked as it is help organize their classrooms. So there's things that we've done with a culture of caring within the company to include increasing maternity leave benefits, paternity leave benefits. We now have elderly care benefits that we've introduced as a result of recommendations for the culture of caring. And there's another organization that we've created, which is called a high five organization. So in order to drive employee engagement, the high fivers are basically their experienced employees that act as mentors for any new employees. One of the hardest things we have today with a remote workforce is creating that sense of community. How do you create that sense of engagement and, and attraction to a company and a reason for them to want to stay, especially in light of the great resignation? And we found that High Fivers is a great tool. So this group basically is attached. Everybody gets one High Fiver and they're able to use that High Fiver to be introduced to different people. So as I talked about needing a sponsor, as you look at your career and career development opportunities, the High Fiver, their responsibility is to make sure that they answer any and all questions related to the company, the culture, where they can find things at the same time, introduce that new employee to more employees, introduce that employee to folks outside of their natural discipline and function. And so that high fiber group, I, I think has been incredibly successful. Wasn't my idea. In fact, 99% of the ideas at our company are not my ideas, but the idea is to let those great ideas surface and then embrace them. And the whole high fiber idea came from one of our directors in e-commerce. And, and she's just a stud. She's amazing. Um, she has a super loud, passionate voice in a good way about making sure that folks are treated fairly and, and that we uh, embrace new employees and develop that sense of community. Yeah, I, I can get on board with that. I'm a high fiver and a hugger, right? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so when we meet in person, we'll, we'll give you a high five and then we'll, then we'll get a hug. Um, we're good. I'm a, I'm a, sounds great. So All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about innovation. And it's, it's really important to your business, especially being in consumer goods. But how do you lead differently with innovation in mind? You know, I, I think what it is, is, you know, we try to do a much better job listening to the voice of the consumer. So, I mean, you know, we just take a look at, we, we have over 5 million reviews on Amazon on our products. I mean, we have a focus group already well in place by just looking at those reviews. Secondly, we also do, um, given obviously my more large scale consumer packaged goods background, we are able to, on a, a very tight basis, work with groups from a focus group perspective, um, in-house use tests, uh, do some kind of insight-led work in terms of just mining consumer insights. And we try to take those, amalgamate them, and then we do blue sky thinking. So we have an innovation process led by just a fabulous business unit leader, that came from Target and Williams-Sonoma, as well as a team that he has handpicked and built. And this team is just incredible. Blows me away every single time we go through a line review. And they're constantly looking at products that are core, so within kind of kitchen, pantry, and, and closet and storage. But they're also looking at different rooms and what we can do to innovate in those other rooms. So think about, we're known for 
really being or, uh, about organization, organizational solutions. Well, you need to organize the garage. You need to organize different parts of your home. And so we've really challenged that team to help infuse and develop new ideas. And then as a part of the innovation process, we build in CapEx, so capital, to basically test products outside of our category. And one of the things that I learned at Procter & Gamble was you know, this idea of calculated risk-taking. But I feel like calculated risk-taking never takes place unless you actually budget for it. So the only way calculated risk-taking is going to take place, if you say, I'm going to set aside 10% of my CapEx, so for molds and things like that, to actually test products. And I can't share with you what those products are, but I can tell you they're incredibly innovative. And they are going into categories that make sense for the brand. So we're not just throwing Hail Marys. We're not going to be creating you know, tires for cars. That would make no sense. But within home organization, there's categories that are completely white space that our competition is in today that we think we can actually offer something unique and differentiated. And we're willing to have the, the intestinal fortitude and courage to go, go for it. And if one out of 10 of those succeed, then we have one new annuity. We have one new contributor to EBITDA, one new contributor to revenue we didn't have before. And as long as you do that in a fiscally responsible way, I think that's smart. And instead of just giving it lip service. And when I was working in the world of private equity, it was tough because private equity, it's a gladiator fight every time you go to board meeting in a good way. These are really, really bright folks and folks that want to see the internal rate of return and the NPV and they want, you know, they're data carnivores and sometimes proving to the data carnivores that it's okay to take a chance in a non-core category or in an adjacent category actually is good business. And it actually will feed the engine if it's successful. Yeah. I think that's really, really important and putting your money where your mouth is, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So where, or I guess from, from whom maybe do you draw your inspiration as a leader? Oh, wow. You know, I continue to draw my inspiration um, from folks that are just so much smarter than I am and, and just these disruptive thinkers. I think about Elon Musk. Um, I'm reading a book on Alexander the Great. Oh. You know, this is a, a general that basically never lost any battles ever in his life. Now, maybe that's a little bit of folklore, but it's interesting just to look back at folks that were amazingly successful in history, good and bad, and learn uh, you know, as much as you possibly can. I, I think CEOs should be just like doctors or pilots. And I don't know why they're not, which is a doctor and pilot, it's mandatory for them to get continuous education. It's mandatory. In order for you to continue to fly a plane, you have to continue to get trained. Well, same thing with a doctor. And I think it's the exact same thing. It should be the same thing for a CEO. We, we shouldn't have folks in our jobs that don't continue to raise our, our, our IQ on a regular basis. So I try to raise my e-commerce IQ by attending as many e-commerce events as I possibly can, because the fact of the matter is the world is changing. It's dynamic. There's folks that are writing the new rules. And if you don't keep up with those rules, then obviously you become irrelevant and you stop making impact. And I think it's just as important for me to justify my job. In fact, even more so, because I tend to make more than folks underneath me um, at the same time, not enough boss. Um, but I, I think it's very important for us to continue to add value and justify our job and earn our salary every single day that we work. And I do it very imperfectly, but I, I challenge myself to do it on a regular basis. Yeah, that's great. And so in each of our episodes, we like to define brilliance in a few ways. And so I'm going to run through a rapid fire of a couple of questions. Uh, and I'd like you to fill in the blank. Sure. Okay. And so the first one uh, is around purpose. Purpose is? Purpose is 
being true to the employees as much as you are to yourself. Purpose is all about authenticity and purpose is all about trust. And it's all about, you know, making promises and keeping promises. Great. Leadership is having the courage to say you're wrong and having the courage to be as good of a follower as you are a leader. Excellent. Brilliant leaders are three adjectives. Humble, driven, results-oriented. Great. Success is? Helping other people succeed. Excellent. And then I perform at my best when? The organization feels and believes that we are winning. Excellent. And then last question. One of the things that you said in our previous conversation that stood out is your main goal is to make someone smile every day. Yeah. I got to ask why, why has that become your mantra and, 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 and how will you accomplish it today? Well, I, I, I think I already did at Starbucks, but um, my, my main goal is truly to try to make somebody smile or make somebody feel good every single day. And, and it streams from my priorities in life, which really I have the four F's that I call them, right? The first one is faith, family, and friends as part of that, finance, and then the last one is fun. And I think interwoven within faith, family, finance, and fun is an ability to try to make a positive impact on others and not take yourself so seriously, not you know push my beliefs on other people. It's to be able to embrace other people's beliefs as strongly as your own. I think with all the vitriol in society today, the idea of you know empathy, diversity, empathy, and inclusion is more needed than ever. And this concept of empathy, I think, is one that people don't talk enough about. And I think in trying to make somebody smile, I'm trying to make somebody empathetic because you know they have their own stories, they have their own challenges. And I think there's so many times we forget about what other people are struggling through and only obsess about what we're struggling through. And as if our situation is unique and nine times out of 10, it really isn't that unique. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Well, Chris, I, I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, Jeff. And thanks to you, our listeners. That's it for this episode of the Brilliant People Podcast. I'm Jeff Botta. If you found this conversation valuable, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Assertitude on LinkedIn for the latest insights on how to lead and perform at your best. Until next time, stay brilliant at work.